All right. Hey, uh, welcome everybody to Sunday Worship TLC, friends and family. We are so glad to have you to be here with us to uh, worship God this Sunday. And so I am grateful for you here. And as we get into this, um, this, this season, this, this, this message, you know, like um, every Sunday we've come here and the backdrop that I have, you guys haven't seen the backdrop, it's getting more and more epic in terms of uh, Christmas de- decor, you know, uh, it just tells me we're getting closer and closer to uh, December 25th, you know. Uh, so it's, it's, it's funny because in this season, what we wanted to do, was, what we wanted to highlight for you in the season of Christmas was this, this series called The Risky Adventure of Love, right? It was this kind of um, this picture of, of saying, you know what, we, wanted, we want you guys to see God's, Jesus' risk in taking this journey, not really a risk. He knew exactly what he was getting himself into, but he also knew exactly how hard and how difficult it was. This risky adventure of love as we were trying to get you guys to understand the picture of Christmas a little bit better, okay? Christmas is a great season. It's a great season because in Christmas, you can, get, uh, you can understand a few of the magical things that come out of Christmas. You can see the, the gathering of families, you know, families gathering together. If, if anything, at least during Christmas, you got to be cordial during this season, right? You gather together, you eat a good meal, you laugh, put up the decorations, presents, all of that stuff. It, it, it brings this kind of like, you know, homey, homely feel to the season. There is a, there's a connection that happens. There's a sharing that occurs during the season. So we understand how Christmas can be very intimate and very beautiful and like I said, magical during this season. But we got COVID this year, 2020, right? We got COVID this year. And so the whole gathering, the whole connection, the whole sharing is a little bit limited this year. And actually, I was thinking about this week and I, and I felt like, you know, it's, it was, it's a beautiful thing, actually, um, limiting the, uh, the, the commercial view of Christmas and really bringing it back to the, the heart of what Christmas is. And I know all of you guys are asking, you know, I can see the value of family. I can see the value of gift sharing. I can see the value of connection. I can see the value of, of sharing in, in each other's, you know, um, presence. But I don't really see the value of a baby in a manger. I don't see the value of what God becoming man actually looks like. I don't see how that can be applied to my life in a very applicable way. And that's something I wanted to actually share with you today. I wanted, I wanted you guys to leave this Sunday message with this mindset, that Christmas has unbelievable applications, implications for your life. But I want to share with you one specific application this year, right? What Christmas can do for you, how Christmas can actually transform your life this very moment. Yes, follow me? All right. So uh, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. That's the one that our brother um, Dennis just prayed for us, um, prayed over us. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. I want to uh, just give you a quick background on it. Philippians chapter 2, Paul is writing to a church who's actually, you know, it's a great church, but they're actually having some sort of struggle. They're having some sort of pain. They're having some sort of problem. And their problem is they're fighting. They're fighting with each other. There's, there's, a, there's a disunity that's happening in the church. And guess what's Paul's solution for that disunity? Guess what's Paul's solution for the fighting? 
It was Christmas. Christmas was Paul's solution to the fighting. You know why they were fighting? Let me, let me give you a quick background. They, they were fighting because there was this, 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 um, this issue of selfishness that occurred in the church. There was this problem of selfishness that was permeating throughout the community. That's why fights happen. That's why disunity happens because selfishness tends to take hold in that community. Let me, let me give you some diagnosis of what selfishness looks like and, t- and show you why this Christmas thing is, is a great solution for it. Selfishness. And if you're at home, you're looking at this, you might think, hey, that's me. PT is kind of describing me. And I'm, as I was writing this message, I was thinking, man, I'm describing myself here. Let me give you a diagnosis of selfishness. You guys ready? Selfishness is a reflex, okay, to expect to be served. Now, I say this is a reflex. You know why? Because when you act in selfishness, you don't think about it. You don't premeditate on it. You don't discern it. You don't think before you do. It's a reflex because you naturally, in your sinful self, jump to it. That's a reflex. Selfishness is a reflex that expects to be served. Like, you know what? I expect something for me. I expect, something for, I expect you to do something on behalf of me or for me. Selfishness is a reflex to feel that I am owed something. Right? This is, this is, the, this is the great picture of, um, of the entitlement generation here. A generation that says, you owe me this. I am entitled to this. This belongs to me. Right? Selfishness, realize that that is a reflex of selfishness. Right? Selfishness is a reflex of wanting to be praised, wanting to get the affirmation, wanting someone to acknowledge you, wanting someone to say something nice about you, wanting someone to say something that you've done and lift up praise. That is actually a reflex of selfishness. Yes, yet, yet. Selfishness is a reflex to expect that things will go your way. Like, I want it this way. It has to be done this way. You can't do it any other way. My way is the right way. All my salt guys who do salt with me, they always say, just tell us what you want us to say because obviously you're going to get us to say it anyway, so might as well just get your way. It's a very, very clear thing. If they're at home, they're probably laughing at this point, at, at this point because they know, Right? Selfishness is a reflex to expect that things will go your way. Selfishness is a reflex to feel that I have a right to act negatively when someone has crossed me. When you have said something or hurt me or did something that that shames me or make me feel low, selfishness is a reflex to say, you know what, I can respond to you negatively. You guys get me? And this is really the heart and the root of why people fight. This is the heart and the root of why people actually have problems with one another. This is the root and the heart of why families argue, why husband and wives argue and bicker, why mom and dad and children argue and bicker with each other. Selfishness is the reflex of it. And you know what happens? You know how you know that these things happen? Because when selfishness hits you and you don't get what you want, you don't get what you're owed, you don't get the praise that you want, you don't, things don't go your way, and you begin to act negatively, do you know what some of the results that happen? These are, this is the diagnosis of selfishness, okay? You get angry. You find yourself doing this when things don't go your way, when, things don't, when, when people don't acknowledge that you're right, when you don't get what you want, you get angry, right? It's a strong emotional opposition 
the obstacle that's in your way. You strike, you, you tighten up, you strike out verbally or physically. You act in self-pity, another result of selfishness. Self-pity, a desire so that others will feel how wounded you are and admire you for being mistreated and move to show you some sort of sympathy. Self-pity is a result of selfishness, right? Where you're constantly saying, you know, this is, I'm the victim of this situation. This is what's going on with me. You should, think the way, you should think this way of me. You should move to show me some sort of sympathy and some sort of care. Selfishness leads to, if you don't get your way, quickness to blame. You accuse people. You point fingers at people. You're frustrated because things don't go your way, and so you look at them weird. Your tone of voice changes, or you verbally, out, outwardly accuse them of something. The result of selfishness is sullenness. Another one, it's discouragement. You're moody, hopelessness, unresponsiveness, withdrawn deadness of emotion. You guys get me? And this right here, this situation, this diagnosis of selfishness was the main problem in the church of the Philippians. And do you know what Paul's solution to that is? Christmas. Talks about the incarnation of Jesus as a solution to this issue. So three things we're going to learn today, guys. We're going to learn first why we fight. I'm going to break it down for you guys. Two, what we need to stop fighting. And three, how do we get that? One, I'm going to share with you guys why you fight why at the heart of it that you're constantly fighting with each other to what we need to stop fighting and how to get it, okay? And the answer is Christmas. So let me, let me, let me let's get to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Let's start there. Why do we fight? And I kind of hint on it already, but let me kind of clarify it some more and give you guys some more thoughts on it. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, if you have any encouragement for being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, right, this is all like them connecting to Jesus, then make my joy complete and being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, verse 3, this is the kicker right here, the first part of it, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain Conceit. Let me stop there. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Why do we fight? What is at the heart of people who fight with one another? Why is that? And the answer to Paul saying is vain conceit. Everybody at home say vain conceit. You can say it at church too. You guys, everybody here? Yeah, say vain conceit. We have a whole little crowd here. Vain conceit. Right? What does vain conceit mean? It means to be starved of glory. The actual Greek definition of it, it means to be starved of glory. It means that you're starved of validation and approval. It means that you're not sure of your significance and value. It means that you're starved for respect and honor. Vain conceit is an emptiness that comes out of people, and that's why you fight. At the heart of why people are selfish towards one another, at the heart of why people are constantly bickering with one another, is this issue that Paul calls vain conceit. It is a starving 
for glory. This is why this unity happens. Okay? And I think you guys understand this. One of the, one of the things about preaching here on Sundays that you guys don't, may not realize is, why do we listen to message? Part of it is because I want you guys to be able to see the timelessness of God's truth and how it applies to so many different aspects of our human existence, right? I want you to be able to take the biblical worldview and recognize it in the way you live your life every day, that it's there, that you don't need a solution that comes from the outside. You need a solution that comes from the one who has made humanity, who understands the heart of humanity, And the reason why we preach and share and the reason why I pastor and shepherd and teach you the word of God is to help you to frame the world that you have with the words of God. And so if you really understand this process of vain conceit, you understand. You understand how vain conceit plays into the culture of success that you are so addicted to. You guys follow one of, one of the ways vain conceit plays out in your day-to-day life is the addiction to the culture of success. Now, what do I mean by that? See, successes are, all, are, are ways to deal with the hunger for glory. Successes is a way to deal the need to feel assured and significant. So if I am successful, I feel assured and significant in my life. If I have the job, if I have the car, if I have the house, if I have the position, if I have the 401k, if I have these so-and-so fill-in-the-blank, if I have the success, if I land the job, if I made the cut, if I receive success, it plays into my need for assurance and acceptance. See, the great lie about in our culture, check this out, the great lie about our culture of success is this, is that when you've used all your means to get it, when you've used all your means to get it, you realize, what? It's not all that great. The great deception of the culture of success that you don't come to realize is that once you finally use everything you possibly can, done everything you can to get your success, you realize it doesn't give you the glory that you want because you're always what? Hungry for more. You're always starving for more glory. At the heart of why things occur, the heart of why you fight, the heart of why things are so stressful is because of vain conceit, and it plays into the culture of success. See, success today is the new drug, right? Think about drug addicts. Think about the idea of drug addicts. What do you know about drug addicts, right? When someone happens to be addicted to something, when they get that first high, when they get that first high, they end up doing what? They end up needing more because they want more of that, more of the drug to continue their high, And after a while, what happens? They need to get more and more and more of it until eventually you're driven to a destructive level where you've destroyed everything in order to get that feeling. And all the while, while you clamor your way to get that next high, there is a growing feeling of emptiness inside, isn't there? That is pretty much the big picture of drug addiction. And that's the exact same thing that happens in success. 
You're, you're starving for glory. In the very beginning, when you get the highest success, you landed your job, right? You landed the interview. You got the promotion. You moved up in one level. And you get that high out of it. And you're thinking, yes, that's awesome, great. And you want what? I want it again. I want to achieve it again. I want to get more of it again and again and again and again until eventually you're driven to a destructive level where you experience what? Diminishing returns. See, all you young'uns out there, all you young brothers and sisters out there, all you hungry brothers and sisters out there for glory, for success, one thing that no one tells you, and one thing no one tells you is that as you chase for it, once you've used everything you've got to get there, you still want more. Because why? The reason why we fight, the reason why there is a constant battle in us, because we are starving for glory. There is vain conceit. Can you recognize that in your day-to-day life? Another, another, another thing that comes out, recognize this in our, in, our, in, our, in, our, in our relationship. Like if you guys are husband and wife, or boyfriend and girlfriend, ask the question, why do you guys fight with each other? Why is it that you fight? Even if you're friends and you're, not, and you're single, why do you fight with people? Why? Because they say something to you that robbed you of your glory. They put you to shame. They made you feel small. They made you feel low. And so what do you have to do? You have to take back your glory by making them feel small. You know why that happens? Vain conceit. It is the issue of that. And what's the worst thing that happens between a relationship? It's the silence, isn't it? The silence in the relationship. When you're fighting with your wife, you're fighting with your husband, you're fighting with your boyfriend, you're fighting with your girlfriend, and it's that silence that comes in. Do you know why that silence hits you so hard? Because that is the greatest fear of your heart. To be totally, absolutely To be ignored is to say that I have no worth. To be ignored and to be treated in silence is to say I have no value. And it robs you inwardly, emotionally, and spiritually. Why do you guys fight? Vain conceit. Think about the issues that we've been seeing in our our country the past few months or few months, right? Why do we see inner city crimes and international terrorism to some degree? It's not about politics or money. At the heart of it, it's not about politics and money. It's about respect. There is a hunger for respect. People are lashing out, not because they are full of who they are, like, I'm so proud of myself, I know exactly who I am. No, they're lashing out because what? They're not assured of themselves. And so they are trying to say, look at me, recognize me, acknowledge me. How dare you disrespect me and think of me like that? You see this played out. And at the heart of it is why? Vain conceit. If you have children, you understand this. right? Why do your kids cry, bang on the floor, throw a tantrum? They want to be recognized. They want you to see them. They want you to hear them. Why do you fight with your parents all the time? Because they said something that did not acknowledge you. They said something that pretty much passed you up. They said something that pretty much cut you down, and you fight, and you're angry because why? They have taken your glory. Vain conceit is the reason why we fight. 
You guys follow me? Now, here's the thing. The therapeutic response to this issue of acknowledgement and value and worth, the therapeutic response that our culture tells us is, is how to fix this. You know what it is? The therapeutic response is, it's not because they're vain, right? Against vain conceit. It's not because it's, it's, it's about the people around them. It's because they have low self-esteem. They have low self-esteem. That's why they're acting like that. That's why, that's why the husband gets upset, because he has low self-esteem. That's why the wife gets upset, because there's an esteem issue. That's why there's fighting issues that goes on, because there is a low self-esteem problem. And their response is, you have to decide how great you are. You have to bestow significance on yourself. You have to convince yourself that you have value. You have to recognize that all that matters is what you think of yourself. That is the therapeutic answer, isn't it? You are the solution. And you know that such a narrative is absolutely, I don't want to say it, but it is, it's absolutely stupid. It's absolutely impossible. Do you know why it's absolutely impossible to think that you can validate yourself? Because you're human. You were made to be relational. You are a social being, which means what? No human being says something like this, everyone thinks I'm a monster. It's okay, I love myself. That doesn't work that way. It never works that way. That's not gonna work because we are relational and social beings only when we get love, approval, and esteem from someone else that you esteem can you actually get self-esteem. Yes, follow? Only when you get love, approval, and esteem from someone that you esteem will you get self-esteem. That's crazy, right? I, I had a friend of mine. She's into this new age meditation kind of crystal stuff. And, you know, like, I'm, she, she tells me, yo, PT, I don't need God, you know. God is like this opioid for me. I can find my true self from within. I am my own goddess, right? And, and true words, okay? This is, I'm not even, like, summarizing her. She actually said that I am a, I am a goddess, inside, and I'm just trying to let that goddess out. I have full esteem of who I am. And I looked at her, and I said, no, you don't. And she was mad, of course. Like, so you're being, you're being a pastor. Like, no, 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 no. You only have the esteem. It's because everyone else around you, your circle that you're dealing with now, is esteeming you that way. They're giving you the approval and the love to think like that, and so therefore you have the esteem to feel like that. The moment you, take, you get taken out of that circle, the moment you are no longer part of that approval, you're going to lose it again. And true to word, true to the word, a few months later, a few months later, went to depression. Why? Right? She thought so-and-so in that group was no longer, like, um, connecting with her. She felt isolated from that group. And then what happened to her inner goddess? Became a little girl again, I guess. Right? Do you guys understand this? See, the Bible has a very clear answer to why you have the issue of vain conceit. The Bible has a very clear answer to why this battle is happening in you. The Bible has a very clear answer to why you fight with each other, why there is a selfishness that reflexively comes out of you all the time. The Bible is very clear, and it says this, we were made for God. We were made to delight in the infinite beauty, majesty of God. 
That is our delight. That is where we get our esteem from when we delight in him. And here's the thing. Because we have turned from God, that infinite size begins to become a vacuum in our lives. There is an infinite size vacuum in us that was meant to be always filled with God. Right? To be filled with his love, with his approval, with his esteem from the infinite God. It, it, it was meant for us to be filled with his delight. But because we have turned away from him, that infinite vacuum is in your soul. And so what do you do, church? What do you do, people? You do everything you can to fill it with other people's approval. You fill it with other people's approval. You fill it with words. You fill it with money. You fill it with affirmation. You fill it with a sense of success. You fill it with everything possible because there is an infinite vacuum hole in your heart that was made for God. And you find yourself chasing and running. And when you do not get it, selfishness kicks in. Anger kicks in, sullenness kicks in, self-pity kicks in, and you find yourself fighting with other people all the time. That's why we fight. Can you guys see that? Can you guys diagnose that in your own heart? All right, PT, so what, what, do, we need to, what do we need to stop it? What do we need to stop it? What do we need, what do we need to stop fighting? What do we need to make peace? What is, the, what is at the heart of a person who can make peace? Look at verse 3 again. Verse 3 and 4. Check this out. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. This is where, check out this grammar part, okay? Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. The problem is vain conceit. Everyone home say vain conceit. Right? And the solution that Paul is saying is what you're supposed to have, what you need to fill yourself up with instead is humility. Everybody say humility. You're meant to have humility in your heart. See, the word humility in the context of this passage it's very important here, okay? If vain conceit is an emptiness, humility means a fullness here. If vain conceit is a starving for glory, humility is a, is a filling of that glory already there. Humility, humility is a picture that you are filled up. It's, it's, it's defined by what you, uh, if you, are, if you habitually look at yourself, you're empty. But if you're full, you have the ability to do what? Look away. Right? See, being conceit forces you to constantly look at yourself. Humility, because you're full, gets you the ability to look away. You understand this, right? All you, all you gluttons like me, when you're full, like before, you know, before you're, you're about to have a, if you've been like starving all day, and you're looking at food, and you're, and you're starving, you're focused on you, right? You're, you're empty of food, so what do you do? You're constantly looking at yourself. I want to fill myself up, and you're looking at the food. But what happens when you're really full? What happens when you're really full? You can look away from the food. If you're super, super full, and someone brings out a fantastic feast, you're like, man, I, I can't even look at that right now, man. Like, I, 
It's beautiful, but I can't even look at that because I'm full. In the same way, vain conceit is an emptiness of you, so you're constantly doing what? Looking at yourself. But humility says that I'm full, so that you can look away from yourself. Now, let me share with you guys a couple things about humility. Humility is opposed to four things. I got these four things from a, from a sermon from Jonathan Edwards. I thought it was really great. I was reading up on this sermon, and then I want to share with you guys. Humility is opposed to four things, which means this. The opposite of these four things is how you know humility is growing in you. So if humility is opposed to these four things, the opposite of those four things is how you know humility is growing in you. You guys get me? And I want to share these four things with you because I want you guys to diagnose your heart. First, humility is opposed to drivenness. It's opposed to drivenness. It's one thing to work. This is for all you workaholics out there, all you guys who burn the midnight oil, all you guys who cannot stop working because you think you will die or the world will end if you will stop for a moment to breathe. Humility is opposed to drivenness. It's, is, it, is it wrong to work hard? Of course not. There are seasons when you have to work hard. A project is in front of you, you got to get it done. You're in med school, you got to finish the thing, right? You're about to do the, there's, there's, a, there's a final coming up. You got to work hard. There are seasons when you have to work hard and you have to take up the task. But if you are habitually working hard, if you can't even breathe, if you don't even have enough sleep all the time, overworking all the time, can I tell you something? That's a response to an emptiness, not a fullness. That, that, that is a sign that you are empty, not that you are full. See, most of the time, it's because you're trying to prove something to yourself. You're trying to fill a vacuum so you overwork to have a sense of duty, purpose, drive. And you can, you, can, you, can, you can wrap it up in whatever way you, you want. I'm doing this to feed my family, my kids. And your kids are like, I don't even see dad. I haven't seen him in a couple days. He's in his office. But I'm feeding him. Right? You're not responding out of fullness. It's emptiness here. You can wrap, you can wrap your workaholism in whatever bow tie, Christmas uh, wrappings you like. But the reality of it is what? It reveals something about your heart. It's empty. Because humility is opposed to that. That's how you know. Humility is also opposed to scornfulness. Scornfulness. This is all you ladies out there. Hell knows no fury like that of a woman scorn, right? Sometimes sarcasm helps makes a good point. Sometimes when you say something like, I'm going to be sarcastic to you because I want you to see how dumb that sounded, right? Sometimes recognizing there are things to disdain, right? Like, I, I don't like that. That's not a good thing, right? We don't like that kind of stuff, okay? But if your habit, if your habitual habit is to be contemptuous, if your habitual habit is to jeer, to mock, to disrespect, to insult, to make fun, all you haters who hide behind the screen and troll people out there, if that's your habit, you know what that's a sign of? Emptiness. It's not a sign of being full. See, humility is inner fullness. But when you find yourself constantly scorning, 
constantly, habitually being contemptuous, that's a sign of inner emptiness. And why do you do that? Because you're putting people down so that you can feel lifted. Isn't that true? When you make fun of people, you make, you make fun of situations so that you can feel like you're above that situation. You're above that person. Humility is opposed to willfulness. So humility is opposed to, uh, first, it's opposed to drivenness, it's opposed to scornfulness, and it's opposed to willfulness. See, a willful person is someone who is always right. They have to be right. What they say is correct because, you know, they're older, they're wiser, they're smarter, whatever reason they, they put out there, right? They're always right. Someone who doesn't listen to the other side, someone who doesn't want to take part of understanding the other side, who doesn't take advice. Someone who was constantly saying, listen to me, I am right. Habitually doing that. That's a sign of what? It's not a sign that you are wise, discerning, and perfect. It could be a sign that you are actually empty. You go about thinking, I have to be right. You got to be wrong. You always need to assure yourself of your validation. So the moment you say that I'm wrong, you're disrespecting me. The moment you say that I am out of place, you are disrespecting me. It's a sign of emptiness, guys. It's not a sign that you're filled. It's not a sign that you have it all. It's not a sign that you are wise and perfect. Are there times when your parents say, tell you things that are wise and discerning? Of course there are. Are there are times when adults, they tell you things just because they think that they are older and they know everything? Of course there is. There are, times, there are times when you do the same thing too, right? When you think that you're more hip or more up-to-date or more modern, so you understand the world a little bit better, you understand the concept of the world a little bit better, and so you think that you're right. That's a sign of willfulness as well. So don't think that you are somehow smarter because you have more information in your brain. Just as that. So just as much. You are empty. Humility is opposed to self-consciousness. You know what that means? You know what pride is? Pride is saying, it's not just saying, I got it, y'all. Pride is not just saying, I'm above everybody. Pride is not just constantly saying, I'm great, I'm awesome, this is cool. Pride is also self-consciousness. To hate yourself, to be down on yourself, to be beating yourself up all the time, to be always noticing what you don't have and what others have, to be victimizing yourself, to walk in self-pity is opposed to humility. It's a sign that you're actually empty, not filled. You know why? Because you're drawing all attention to who? To yourself. Look at me, self-pitying. Look at me, address me, my concerns. See how much I've been victimized so that you can give me a little bit of love and attention. You are just as proud, proud as a person who draws attention to themselves to lift themselves up. Humility, in the context of what Paul is saying here, is a fullness. It's a fullness, inner fullness that comes. Vain conceit is a starving for glory. It's an inner emptiness that happens. 
So Paul says the problem of why you fight, the problem of why there is insecurity, the problem of why there is disunity, the problem of why there is these issues that you see around the world with, between relational people is because of vain conceit. You were made for a glorious God, but you turn away from that God, and now what is left there for you is an inner, infinite, vacuum-sized emptiness, and you are constantly trying to fill it with other things. Workaholism. Scornfulness, willfulness, self-consciousness. You're trying to fill these things with yourself, drawing attention to yourself, lifting yourself up higher, making yourself feel better. The Bible says humility is opposed to all of those things because humility is an inner fullness. See, if you have an inner fullness, guess what? You don't need to work so much to make yourself feel like you've accomplished something, to be validated. If there's an inner fullness in your heart, you don't need to make fun of someone to make yourself feel better about who you are. If there's an inner fullness of your heart, you don't need to always think that you're right and that everyone else is wrong regardless of the situation, regardless even if they are wrong and you are right. Humility is an inner fullness where there is not a need to draw attention to yourself, but that you can, you're so full that you can draw attention to others. You guys follow me, right? This is the problem, and this is the heart. How to fix it. And you know what's Paul's solution to fixing this? What is Paul's solution to fixing fighting? He says, you got to have humility. Well, then, Paul, great. How do I get humility? And the answer is Jesus, or Christmas in this case, right? Christmas is the answer to this, right? Look at verse 5 to 11. Verse 5 to 11 is such a beautiful verse. I make, I make almost every time you go on missions, people to memorize this. Because this is, this is oh, verse 6 to 11, I'm sorry. Verse 6 to 11, it is, it is this wonderful picture of Jesus' incarnation, of his reality, of Christmas. And when you see this, this is Paul's solution to fighting this was Paul's solution to the disunity. This is Paul's solution to the emptiness that you feel. This is Paul's solution to the glory, starving, starving glory that you experience. Look at verse 6 to 11. Having the same mindset as Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue can uh, acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christmas is the answer to how we receive humility. Christmas is the answer of how we receive inner fullness. Christmas, Christmas is the answer to how we deal with the reason why we fight vain conceits. Who was Jesus? Where was Jesus? Paul says, Jesus was equal to the Father in nature. And what did he do? 
Jesus gave up his privilege. He risked all of his privilege. He gave up his nature and he took on what? Human nature. I don't think you guys understand the, the, the gap between divine and humanity, right? I use this all the time, this illustration all the time for um, Bible study, right? The gap between divinity and humanity, a way for you to probably process it, is the gap between you and a cockroach. That is the gap between divinity and humanity. Imagine you becoming a cockroach. How ridiculous, how disgusting, how low, how empty is that? And that was what Jesus became. And he didn't become, check this out, he didn't become a king of the cockroaches. He didn't become even a, a general of the cockroaches. I don't even know they have generals or kings and queens. But he didn't become one of the big ones, Okay. He didn't become one of the, the scary-looking ones, because there are plenty of scary-looking ones. He didn't become one of those hissing ones. He became the tiny, small, insignificant, lowly, in the cracks, hiding behind your TV, in your TV, in your cockroach. He became a human being born into a poor family, the poorest of the poor family. He gave up his privilege, his complete and utter privilege. And the result was what? The result was what? He was completely full and he became empty. And the result was he was lifted up above everything else. Above everything else. God gave him a name that was above every name, the Bible says. How is Jesus... How does Christmas have the power to save you and transform you to deal with issues of disunity and fighting and relationships? How can Christmas do that? How? You have to see what happened at Christmas, and you got to take Christmas inside of you. Okay, I know that sounds like a very hallmark card, right? But it's the truth. You got to see what happened at Christmas. And you got to realize you got to take that Christmas and put it in your heart. You got to see what happened outside of you, and you got to bring it inside of you. What happened outside of you? Look at verse 7. What happened? Verse 7, he says, Rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He made himself nothing. He emptied himself. Paul is saying we are killing ourselves desperately every day trying to Fill ourselves with something, fill ourselves with some sort of glory. And what does the one God who had infinite glory do? He emptied himself of his glory. He voluntarily did it. He didn't, wasn't even forced to do it. He voluntarily submitted and emptied himself of his glory to have nothing. Do you know what kind of glory that Jesus had? No, you don't, because I don't either. Because I know, I know that it was beautiful beyond measure. I know that he was glorious beyond comprehension. I know that he was full and he emptied himself and became nothing. Jesus emptied himself and became absolute not nothing. And the Bible said what? The Bible said in Isaiah 53, there was nothing noticeable about Jesus. I'm going to tell you the truth. The Bible said Jesus was ugly. He wasn't even a good looking man. The Bible said he was actually ugly. Right? And what did Jesus take? On the cross, he took what you and I most fear the most in our whole entire life. 
And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what Jesus took? He took an utter, complete, utter, utter and complete ignoring of the Father. He was utterly ignored, cosmically ignored. You and I, we get upset when our wives gives us the silent treatment. We get upset when people give us a silent treatment. Imagine a cosmic silent treatment. It will destroy you. And Jesus took it. He was cut off completely. He was embracing our worst nightmare, and God completely turned away from him. This is what happened with Christmas, guys. Jesus, by Jesus becoming a man. And Jesus experienced all of that so that what? So that you would not have to. How does that work? Let me tell you. This is the picture of representation, okay? You know living in America that you have elected representatives, senators and senators and representatives, right? Now, if they declare war on a different country, guess what? The whole nation is at war. You guys get me? Whether you like it or not, you, because they represent you, what they say represents the whole entire nation. And so when they say America is at war, boom, we're all at war. Right? Whatever voice that represents you is the loudest, represents the whole group. I had this funny conversation with, uh, with Ty, who's a brother in Vietnam, all the time. He, you know, he, he's, he just reads our news. Or, so his idea of what you know, America is like is through the news. And so he says, America is stupid. I said, whoa, 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 bro. I'm not dumb. He's like, no, no, no. Y'all stupid. And I said, well, can you stop lumping me in with, like, you said, you American citizen, right? I said, yeah. Y'all stupid. I'm like, oh, right? Because of whatever, you know, news broadcast or whatever he, he saw at that moment. Because whatever is represented flows to the rest of those who are being represented. You guys get me? And this is how it works with Jesus. Check this out. Jesus, if you... Allow for Jesus to represent you. If, if, if you recognize that Jesus represents you, this is what he does. This is what he does. Oh, my goodness. He takes everything that you are. He takes everything that you are, and he pays it before God. And everything that is, that is him, his glory, he gives to you. So when God looks at you, when God looks at you, he sees the representative, and he declares across the board, you are worthy. You are glorious. You are precious. The Bible calls, Jesus, the Bible says that God sees us as precious stones, greater than precious stones. Through Jesus Christ, we become, in the eyes of God, more precious than all the treasures of the earth because of our representative, Jesus Christ. What Jesus did was he took everything that you, that gap between you and God, that infinite gap between you and God, he made himself into this cockroach and he approached God and he says, go ahead, judge me. And in judging him, right, God Connected that to all of those who follow after Jesus. And at the same time, when Jesus was 
resurrected, when he was lifted up, when he was back in glory, that means what? Everything about Jesus becomes true about you. See, when God looks at you and he says, I will no longer judge you. I will no longer put that crime against you. I will no longer see the sins in your life. Not that I know that you don't sin. I know you sin, but it's been paid for by my son, Jesus Christ. And so now when I look at you, what I see is glory. What I see is beauty. What I see is preciousness. And when you understand what was done from Christmas, that was done for Christmas, and you take that into your heart, you realize something. You know that you're loved and approved because why? The one you esteem can only give you self-esteem, correct? The one in whom you can only feel love and approval if you get love and approval from someone you esteem that you can get self-esteem. And there is no greater sense of approval, there is no greater sense of approval when you have God's approval, Not, but only that you have God's approval, knowing that you can never lose his approval. That's how crazy it is. And so when you know, when you know that you have God's approval and you cannot lose his approval, not because of what you've done or what you continue to do or what you have not done yet or will do, but because of what Christ has done, not only do you have God's approval because of his death, life, and resurrection, you have you cannot lose God's approval. And if that right there, if that right there is deep within your heart, if Christmas is in your heart like that, let me tell you something. You're not going to fight it. Because the very thing that opposite happens with Christ, he who made, was made low, Jesus, God raised him and exalted him above every name, it is when you are willing to understand that. You have the same trajectory as Jesus. The one who had all the glory, empty himself of his glory to save those who had none. God says, now you go do that. You go do that. Because that same issue that's going to happen with Christ, he who is lifted up, given the name above every name, it is going to happen with you. The way to be rich, guess what? It's to give. The way to lead is to serve. The way to win power and influence is to sacrifice. The way to be happy is not to focus on your own happiness, but to focus on the happiness of others. See, when you understand God's approval of you like that, and knowing that he, you cannot lose that approval, knowing who you are, your identity, fully in Christ because of Christmas, my goodness, guys, it will change the way you will deal with people. It will change the way you will deal with your wife, your husband. It will change the way you will deal with your children. It will change the way you will deal with your friends, your family. It will change the way you will deal with the way you work, how the way you treat others, the way you deal with life. It will change the way you think, the way you feel, the way you express yourself. Because why? That's Christmas. That's the power of Christmas. When you understand the incarnation. So my hope, church, my hope is that this Christmas, as we are being isolated from friends and family, as we are being isolated from the quote-unquote magic of the joy of sharing and loving during Christmas, 
that we would have the discernment and the wisdom to sit and think of Christmas, what was done, and take that Christmas and put it in our hearts. To understand that you are approved, not because of your work, not because of what you look like, not because of what others tell you you look like, not because, and this, let me tell you this, those of you guys who say like, who's watching this and you're like, I don't need people's approval. Yeah, you do. You look at social media and you think that this is what everyone else approves and if you look like that, then you get approval. You're not, you're, you are intrinsically seeking approval. So don't, don't, don't go around and think you're all hearty and, and proud and, 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 and it's like somehow special because you don't actually listen or ask for specific words of approval. Intrinsically, you're already searching for it. And the, the most deceptive thing is that we have social media that tells you of your approval by how many likes you get when you post a picture, right? Or what you look like in comparison to everybody else that you think is worthy of approval. You see, Christmas takes all of that away. Because none of that completely fulfills. Christmas tells us the God of heaven, the infinite God, approves of you because of Jesus Christ. And not only does he approve of you, you can never lose that approval. You are precious in his eyes. You are worthy in his eyes. You are beautiful in his eyes. You are great in his eyes. You are glorious in his eyes. You are holy in his eyes. You are righteous in his eyes because of Christ. Now go out and do what Christ did. Lead by serving. Be rich by giving. Find happiness by seeking for the happiness of others. Find influence and power through sacrifice and love. Let's pray, church.